Future Pulse, investigating innovative cardiovascular research and the intersection of academic theory and clinical practice. I'm Dr. Thomas Nero, interventional cardiologist and director of cardiovascular research at CAFC. Good evening. I'm Dr. Thomas Nero, and we are going to be interviewing Dr. Paul Thompson this evening. Dr. Thompson, why don't you introduce yourself? So I'm Paul Thompson. I'm Chief of Cardiology Emeritus at Hartford Hospital in Hartford, Connecticut, and I'm a professor of medicine, also emeritus, at the University of Connecticut. And I understand you've also been doing some teaching in Boston as well? Yeah, I work one week every other month at Mass General, working with residents and fellows and doing some ward coverage, which has been fun as well. Excellent. Just to sort of fill out your bio, you have an extensive background in lipidology, in general cardiology, as well as sports cardiology. And just for a bit of background, I understand that you have a significant athletic past, if you don't mind telling us a little bit about that. Well, it's not really that significant. I was good. I was not great. I ran in the uh, 1972 Olympic trials, but obviously did not make the team. I was a third-year medical student. And I actually trained by running six miles to the hospital and six miles home each night. You know, that sounds like a lot of running to people who aren't runners, but most people in those days were doing at least 100, 120 miles per week. I once did 100 miles when I was a cardiology fellow at Stanford, and I was so exhausted I could hardly see patients. So I thought my uh, future success would not be in, in running, but in cardiology. Tom, I've always had an interest in skeletal muscle and also in in exercise performance. And so that's led to my interest in lipid metabolism because I got interested in why distance runners had high HDL levels. And actually we had an an NIH grant for 11 years looking how athletes metabolize cholesterol. And that got me into all the statins and everything else. And then we got interested in statin muscle problems. So I've always kind of been interested in muscles, both the heart and the skeletal. I think that those issues with athletes and lipids and how those interact are incredibly, incredibly interesting. And certainly your work on statin-associated myopathy, I just think has been wonderful and uh, worthy of its own conversation. So I'm already going to put a plug in for a second interview and I'll do that early because those topics are just so wonderful and so ripe for further investigation and discussion. Today, one of the things I wanted to specifically talk to you about was your work in lipid metabolism and uh, specifically lipid subfractionations and lipoprotein A. Can you tell us what uh, what you've been doing and work in that field and some of your thoughts on that? So we've been interested in lipoprotein A for a long period of time since really the early 1990s. Lipoprotein A is a type of LDL cholesterol, um, but it has a, a this this interesting particle that it's it's attached to. So it's it, it has this material, the the lipoprotein A protein that actually looks a lot like plasminogen. If you put up a plasminogen molecule and you put up lipoprotein A, there would be a lot of homology in in part of that molecule. So it's a real risk factor for heart disease. And no matter what your LDL cholesterol level is, if you have a high lipoprotein little a, it increases your chance of having a cardiovascular event. Mechanisms are not quite clear. Is it due to the cholesterol part of lipoprotein A? Or is it due to the fact that lipoprotein A looks like a lot like plasminogen, so may interfere with the dissolution of clots in the coronary arteries and elsewhere? And also the lipoprotein A particle carries a lot of phospholipids and phospholipids are inflammatory. So is it cholesterol? Is it inflammation? Is it anti-clotting? We really don't know. There aren't any real ways to, to treat it at the present time, but we're involved in some company studies. It's not my own research, but some industry studies 
uh, trying to reduce lipoprotein A and see if it makes a difference in survival. For your practice right now, what are you doing as far as who are you looking at for these uh, lipid subfractionations and you know, what sort of triggers you to start, start down that path of investigation? So I'm not a big a lipid subfractionation sort of person. You know, I'm a, like a meat and potatoes sort of guy. Well, I do have salad, but meat and potatoes and salad. So I don't do a lot of advanced lipid testing. Um, and here's why. You know, one of the things that is a predictor of who gets heart disease is um, how many particles you have. Not necessarily just the density of those particles, but if you have a lot of particles, that's a lot of stuff that can get into the endothelium. Because Face it, atherosclerosis is a chemical reaction. It's a chemical reaction that occurs in your endothelium. Particles get into the endothelium. They get the, uh, the cholesterol gets oxidized. The oxidized is noxious to the endothelium. That starts the whole atherosclerotic process. So every bad particle has one ApoB level. So if you want to know how many bad particles one of your patients has, all you got to do is measure ApoB because every chylomicron remnant, every chylomicron, every VLDL, every VLDL remnant, every LDL has one ApoB. How many are on an HDL? Zero ApoBs are on HDL. So if you get an ApoB level, you basically know how many bad particles you have. And you want your ApoB level about 10 points above what your LDL cholesterol goal is. Now, that's, that's rough, but that's a way to look at it. So I get a lot of um, ApoB levels when I'm questioning whether I should treat or not. And the other thing I do is I pay a lot of attention to lipoprotein A. Why? Because no matter what your LDL cholesterol level is, lipoprotein A makes it worse. And about 20% of the population have elevated lipoprotein A levels. Now, one other thing, lipoprotein A may affect the type of cholesterol plaque you get. We reported two women that I saw that came to me who came with, with angina, unstable angina, and both of them had 99% um, LAD lesions. One had a coronary artery calcification score of zero, and one had a coronary artery calcification score of one. So um, it may be that lipoprotein A causes sort of a strange plaque composition, and so maybe different than good old garden variety atherosclerosis. And other than the patients who come in who are a little bit sort of surprising for you, younger patients who have early disease, does family history trigger for you or does high coronary calcification scoring do it for you? Uh, when, are, when are the other times that it's, you're pulling that trigger? So the thing that pulls my trigger to start looking harder is actually patient concern. So a typical person is a 45-year-old who comes to see me and he says, you know, my twin, my, not my twin brother, but my, my brother, at a 45-year-old, says my older brother had a heart attack at 45, but my lipids are good and my doctor doesn't want to treat me, but I, I, I'm concerned. Um, before I give what I call false reassurance, I nearly always measure lipoprotein A, and it's surprising the number of times that you find a very high lipoprotein A. So as I said, there aren't a lot of good ways to, uh, to treat it. So let's just talk about it a little bit. What, what causes a high lipoprotein A? Picking the wrong parents. It's inherited. So if you pick the wrong parents and they happen to have a high lipoprotein A, you're going to get it too. We should always remember that as clinicians, because if I find a patient with a very high lipoprotein A, I want ultimately to measure those kids at some point so that we, we do cascade screening. Hypothyroidism raises lipoprotein um, little a. Low testosterone levels, low estrogen. We reported that testosterone lowers 
It, others have reported that estrogen lowers it. So there's not a good way to treat it. Niacin lowers it a little bit, which is quite interesting because, you know, niacin has a relatively little effect on LDL levels. And nobody really knew how, ni how niacin worked, but it did work in the coronary prevention trial published way back in 1976. But niacin may work by lowering lipoprotein delay. PCSK9 inhibitors lower lipoprotein A a little bit. But what's really news is that there's a, a messenger RNA inhibitor that's being studied by um, one of the companies to lower lipoprotein A and see if it reduces recurrent cardiovascular events. Yeah, I think we're all going to be very excited when we can start treating some of these other risk factors. That project that you're involved in, I know that you're recruiting at Hartford, is I think going to be a wonderful step forward, unfortunately. And we, I know we still have another three or four years before we're going to have results from that trial. Yeah, the study isn't thought to be finished and have results coming out till somewhere in, in 2025. Yeah. Um, but, you know, things take time. Yeah, that's part of the process, unfortunately. What are you doing now as far as uh, treatment? How are you counseling your patients and what are you choosing for your pharmacologic armamentarium right now? So, you know, it's important to treat the risk and not necessarily the risk factor. Now, what I mean by that, you know, um, I think it was the ASCOT trial that took people who had hypertension and treated them with a statin. And believe it or not, the people who got treated with a statin had lower risks of heart disease, even though it didn't treat the hypertension. And diabetics treated with a statin have lower risk of heart attacks, have fewer heart attacks, even though, as we know, statins tend to, to raise diabetes risk. So when we have people with elevated lipoprotein A's, we can't do much about the lipoprotein A. I make sure that their thyroid levels are normal and all that sort of stuff. But we go after the risk. In other words, we take care of smoking and blood pressure, and we put them on a statin. If you look at the epidemiologic studies, if you, even if you have a high lipoprotein A, if you have a very low LDL cholesterol, your risk is mitigated. Now, it doesn't go totally away because, as I said, Lipoprotein A makes any LDL cholesterol level worse, but you can lessen the risk, we believe, by putting them on aggressive statin and azetamibe and whatever treatment. It is now approved, believe it or not, to do LDL apheresis for people with heart disease in elevated lipoprotein A. So some insurance companies, we run one of the, I think there are only 30 or 40 LDL apheresis programs left in the country because PCSK9 inhibitors have been so effective. But we do run a program at, at Hartford Hospital um, of LDL apheresis, and we have some patients that we're able to get in for LDL apheresis whose only problem is an elevated lipoprotein A and heart disease. So they already have to have some intervention or bypass surgery or stroke, I'm assuming. In order to get into it, it depends on the insurance company, but they have to be really high risk patients. In other words, people with quite high lipoprotein A's and established disease. Because even though we're good at predicting um, who's going to get events, we're not perfect at predicting who's going to get events. Um, the best predictor of who's going to get an event is who's had an event. You know, I always <laughs> used to say it's like being the third grade teacher. If you want to figure out who's going to give you trouble in your third grade class, go ask the second grade teacher because those kids don't change too much. And it's unfortunate. There's something about people who get heart disease that they tend to get it again. Yeah. So I hate to ask you the question about, do you have any goals for LDL cholesterol and statins, statins plus azetamide and or PCSK9 inhibitors? Is there a point at which you're going to the PCSK9 inhibitors or is there ever, you know, 
Is there ever a goal or where you feel comfortable with or without coronary artery disease? And do you have different sort of low-end goals for patients who've already had ischemic coronary disease? Basically, I tell patients, um, and I sing it for them as well, uh, that if uh, they've had coronary heart disease, we're about to play cholesterol limbo. Dun, 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 dun. You know, how low can you get that LDL without knocking the bar off the stanchion? Now, granted, there are side effects of statins. We know that they increase the risk of developing diabetes. That's the devil you can worry about. The devil you know is that somebody who's got heart disease has a chance of getting it again. Even if their coronary arteries don't look tight or narrowed after they've been fixed, remember, it's not the tight plaque that gets you. It's the plaque that's not so tight that gets tight suddenly. You know, the plaque rupture, the plaque erosion, the thrombosis, that sort of stuff. So with people with coronary artery disease, I try to get them as low as I can get them without making them miserable. And, and that's both, you know, do no harm, but also do no financial harm. I want to make sure that they can afford what I'm trying to treat them, you know, unless there's some special reason that I have to get them really low. Now, the best support for the cholesterol limbo approach is that if you look at the Fourier trial, which is used, uh, you know, the uh, PCSK9 inhibitor, it took people who were at high risk for recurrent events, but pretty well treated. Their LDL was 90. It's not 70, but it was 90 at baseline. And they were treated with either placebo injections or they got um, injections of evolucumab, one of the PCSK9 inhibitors. And the LDL was reduced to a median value that was either 28 or 30, depending on which graph you look at. So if you were left at 90, you didn't do as well as the people who got all the way down to um, the 30. And in fact, over just three years of follow-up, three years of follow-up, the absolute reduction in events was 2%. So you only had to treat 50 people to save one um, life. Now you could, uh, one event, sorry. Now you, someone could say, yeah, but you spent a ton of money to, to, uh, to save that one person. And I get it. I understand that. The point is, is that even lower is even better for people with established coronary artery disease. That was a high-risk group, so you can't expect to be so successful. But it's a proof-of-concept study, and the concept is even lower is even better. So I get the LDL as low as I can get it. Now, what about the rest of suffering mankind, those people who haven't had cardiac events and all that sort of stuff? I take a look at where their risk factors are, and you know, I go as I think most people do generally by the 2018 guidelines, which means that if they have an estimated 10-year risk of over 7.5% using the American Heart Association risk calculator, then those people should be treated to get their LDL lower. If they've got diabetes, they should be treated aggressively. If they've got established disease, we've already talked about that very aggressively. So I follow a fairly standard formulary with a couple of other things. What the patient wants to do and how worried the patient is, is a very important thing. And what that patient's lipoprotein A level is. Remember, we don't measure lipoprotein A in everybody. Now, the Europeans, in their guidelines, recommend nearly universal lipoprotein A um, measurement. Uh, we don't, but I do. I tend to get them in nearly everybody because it gives me a sense as to how low I'm going on that limbo bar. Also with the lipoprotein A, we were talking a little bit about its homology with plasminogen. And does it, uh, the presence of lipoprotein A, make you reach to aspirin in patients who don't have established coronary artery disease. And those who do, 
Are you doing things like vascular dose rivaroxaban or anything else other than uh, doing platelet therapy? So, Tom, that's a great question, and I'm glad you brought it up because I neglected to mention it. Because lipoprotein A is associated with thrombosis as well as atherosclerosis, this, that's one of the groups in primary prevention that I always try to put them on an aspirin. In fact, I'm told um, in the nurse's health study, you know, where they gave them aspirin or placebo, the group that seemed to benefit was the group that had elevated lipoprotein um, A levels. So, um, and I guess I should say, you know, we're not talking about apolipoprotein A, you know, we're not talking about the HDL carrier. We're talking about lipoprotein parentheses, small a, lipoprotein little a. But the group that benefited was that group who had, were on aspirin. Okay. Your second question was, was a good question about what about the addition of something like rivaroxaban or whatever? I haven't done it a lot. It makes some sense in the uh, lipoprotein A group, but I don't know studies that have addressed that issue directly. Yeah, I think that we're all still trying to um, figure out how we're going to be adding in vascular dose rivaroxaban into our armamentarium. You know, for me, I've been moving over, you know, as an interventional cardiologist, I've been moving over to short-term DAPT. Um, and then after, you know, the three months or six months, depending on the patient, um, then trying to make that decision about whether I think that they're at higher risk. And if, if they are, then putting them on the the vascular dose rivaroxaban at 2.5 milligrams twice daily, but you know I, I think it's um it's a little unclear. And part of the problem is is that we have this whole thing with polypharmacy now. We have so many ways um, to treat patients, and you know the patients only have so much bandwidth that they're going to put up with us on how many different medications they're going to take. But um, I think that with good science and the, you know the more that we uh, uh, figure out who it's going to be, whether it's from inflammatory panels or whether it's lipoprotein A, um, I think that will, that will truly help us uh, going into the future. I'm going to agree with you. I, I do not know yet myself where I'm going to fit in the, um, you know, the direct thrombin inhibitor, pro, uh, you know, anticoagulants. Uh, it's, it's an interesting issue. And it's a good point with the lipoprotein A folks. Yeah. And, and you know, I think that we're also going to find, figure out other th mechanisms for um, anticoagulation. You know, we're now doing some research in using factor 11A inhibitors. Um, there's going to be other issues with you know, trying to decrease the risk of bleeding and other pieces that um, are the other side of these thrombosis things, but a little bit off topic for um, lipoprotein A today. But you know, you, you bring up an excellent point though. It's amazing how far we can have come because when I was trained and I, you know, finished my residency in, let me see, 1975, hate to admit it, but you know, if someone had a heart attack, they had about a 20% mortality rate within the next year, 20%, one in five. And now, you know, the, the mortality rate after a heart attack or, uh, is about, is less than 1%. So that's why these studies are enormous. You have, so there's a, there's, even though you can show clinical effectiveness, the question always comes down in your number you need to treat. And, and that's really where it's really hard to make these decisions because you're right, you can overload folks. And one of, you know, one of the rules is do no harm, but do no financial harm at the same time. Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful discussion again today, Dr. Thompson. I always uh, enjoy the, the chance to uh, speak with you. And is there any last ideas that you want to leave with? I think two things. One is don't give false reassurance. In other words, be, if somebody comes to you worried, uh, pay attention to them because people have a strange way of knowing things about themselves. And over the years, one of the things I've found that causes people to worry about getting heart disease um, is lipoprotein delay. And I think the other message is that even lower 
is even better. We're seeing that for blood pressure. We're seeing it for hemoglobin A1Cs. We're seeing it for LDL. Basically, with risk factors, you want to get them as low as possible. And I guess the last thing is don't get so tied up in the risk factor. Don't treat the risk factor, treat the risk. If you can't lower a risk factor, um, go after the overall risk. And one of the best ways to go after the risk of heart disease is statins, whether you like it or not. Wonderful. Well, that was wonderful. Thank you again, Dr. Thompson. And I look forward to further discussions about other, other topics. Always my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. For a risk factor, um, go after the overall risk. And one of the best ways to go after the risk of heart disease is statins, whether you like it or not. Wonderful. Well, that was wonderful. Thank you again, Dr. Thompson. And I look forward to further discussions about other, other topics. Always my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.